Welcome to Inside the War Room. Today's episode, I realize just how dumb I am. I know you're thinking, Ryan, we know how dumb you are each episode, but this one really, really showed as I had on Lars Chitka talking about the mind of a bee. I didn't even know why bees make honey. I am a simpleton amongst simpletons. I hope you enjoy the interview. If you do, go to War Room Media, subscribe to the free newsletter. If you want to support the show, you can do that there as well. Without further ado, let's get to Lars. Lars, welcome to the War Room. Hi, nice to meet you. Okay, so I think I heard in an interview somewhere that you've been studying bees for... 30 years, is that correct? Um, it's it's almost 35 at this stage, but yeah, approximately. Mm-hmm. 35 yeah. years, okay. And when we say bees, that there's a general term for bee, of course, but then there's a bunch of different types of bees. So honeybees, carpenter bees, I mean, bumblebees, or is it AB, multiple bees? How should we think about this conversation? We're talking about bees. Yeah, you're right. There's there's over 20,000 species of bees out there. Um, so in addition to the familiar honeybees that deliver honey, as the name says, and um, some others that you've mentioned, the social bumblebees, there are thousands and thousands of solitary bee species, also and carpenter bees are some of them. And these are often much less known. Now, much of my work has been on social bees, including bumblebees and honeybees, but some on solitary bees as well. And how much difference among this 20,000 bee spectrum that you gave us, like from one end, is it a large extreme difference between the bees or are they generally pretty much the same, but the differences are minor? No, there are extreme differences in their biology from um, the social systems of honeybees, which can have up to 60,000 workers and which have very elaborate wax constructions, the familiar and highly regular and symmetrical honeycomb. Um, and they have a symbolic language by which they can communicate to each other about the coordinates of food sources that they've discovered. They have a very elaborate di- division of labor where different individuals engage in different tasks. And at the other end, there are solitary species, all of which are single mothers, so to speak. So it's one individual that builds a nest with no help from anyone else. And they have to do, they have to be jacks of all trades, so to speak. So they have to do the building, the defense, the uh, provisioning of the larvae all by themselves. And even among the social species, there are huge differences in food specializations. There are some species of stingless bees that uh, um, that um, spend their entire lives stealing from other bees. They're so-called kleptoparasites. <laughs> um, there are others. So we, the vast majority of bees feed from flowers, but there are some tropical bees that feed from carrion. Um, only and so there are big specializations also in, in the, or differences in their diet, for example, in addition to differences in social systems and constructions. Some tropical species nest inside um, arboreal termite nests mm-hmm. only, and they build 
very strange nests with um, with with fake chambers with diluted honey to deter any kind of intruders that might enter the nest, which our familiar honeybees don't do, for example. So, okay, quite so a bit of diversity. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm reminded of uh, one of my kids' favorite movies is the Bee Movie. And so you talk okay. about the division of labor. They have all in, the, in that movie. There's a that's part of the whole thing about what bee and type of bee you're going to be. And so it sounds like for the honeybee that obviously that's a fictional movie, but there is some basis to of what's going on in that movie. Oh yes. So I mean, there are many different kinds of tasks that need to be taken on in a beehive or a natural bee nest, and that does not just include provisioning the the colony with nectar and pollen from flowers, but also the construction abilities, the taking care of the brood, the cleaning of cells, the removal of dead bees, colony defense, for example. Um, some of these tasks, the worker bees go through sequentially. So they start out typically with within hive duties of cleaning up and uh, and building home and tending to the brood and only later in their lives switch specialization to foraging for leaving the hive and at the transition they are, they're often guard bees so they're um, positioned near the entrance of the colony defending it against any intruders which can be other bees that are trying to steal nectar or wasps or sometimes of course big animals such as bears that are also after the honey. Who determines who gets what, what job? That's a very good question. So everything is decentralized in a bee colony. There's no, no boss who gets to decide who does what. And there's also no, um, no one walks around and sees, okay, do we have enough honey collectors and enough comb builders at the moment? It's all decentralized and to some extent self-organized. So different individuals have slightly different sensitivities to the stimuli that determine what, who does which task. So for example, there are signals from the larvae that say, I'm hungry. And some uh, adult worker bees are more sensitive to such stimuli and they will be the first who, um, will then feed the larvae and or go out and forage, whereas other individuals have higher thresholds and will only respond later. Other individuals respond with high sensitivity to um, an elevated level of carbon dioxide, which means that the colony is short of oxygen. And that means we need some ventilation here. And some individuals are highly sensitive, so they'll start first. And if you further increase the level of carbon dioxide, then more and more individuals will also engage in the task. And then, of course, if you've got enough of them working on the task, then that means the, ta the, the need for doing the task gets less. And so they will stop recruiting further individuals to the same task. So it's all beautifully self-organized, so to speak. When you say sensitivity, what do you mean? So for that simple stimulus that I've just discussed, the CO2 levels, mm -hmm. carbon dioxide, um, we can't smell that, but bees sensory systems are totally different. And one of the tricks they can do and we can't is to smell CO2. And so like 
humans, I guess there might be in us also different sensitivity to certain odors. So some can smell them right away. Um, others take a bit longer time. And there's also like the familiar sensitivity of dogs to odors also differs between individuals. And that's the same for bees. So for any one stimulus, like an, an identical level of CO2 in the hive can be smelled by all bees, but, um, but some will smell it at a lower concentration than other bees. And those that, that smell it first, that means they have the highest sensitivity. And so they also respond first. So they will be the first ventilation experts in the colony, so to speak. Okay. So they can smell it in, in this case is what you're saying. It's a, exactly, it's a sensitivity to a smell. So okay. Okay. if you, so let's say to transport that to, to mammals, so dogs have higher sensitivity to odors than we do, right? They're just better at smelling them. I got you. Okay, and so these sensitivities, do they change by age or experience or is a bee that's prone to the CO2 sensitivity always prone or as he matures, might his uh, sensitivity change to the larva or something else? So the sensitivity to CO2 stays the same for all we know. For other odors, that's not necessarily the case. Um, so for example, the odors that, um, that, that adhere to flowers, they are something that bees learn. And so um, unlike the sort of, um, the widespread assumption that bees just sort of fly aimlessly over the landscape and then there's a nice odor and a nice color and they'll just drop out of the sky and land. Um, they actually learn about flower colors and flower odors as well. And that's because they basically need to be careful shoppers in the flower supermarket. They can assess which flowers have the highest rewards, like nectar, for example, and they also can assess the price tag. So the, the reward that is delivered by the flower in proportion to the effort that you need to invest to get the nectar. And then for the best products, the best flower species, you remember them. You remember they smell like geranium or like menthol or whatever the smell is. And you keep that in mind and then look out for that particular smell to find more of the same flowers because they've already proven to, to be the most rewarding. And so in that case, they, they're learning these scents, but also their sensitivity to such scents can actually increase after they've become familiar with them. And is this something that the other bees are helping them go through this process of learning? Like, you, like so, you know, the, a master bee, to give it a term, or an elder bee goes out and flies, will a younger bee follow to see? Um, is there any kind of communication between the bees or is this just a exploratory process they have to learn on their own? So in honeybees, there's a very elaborate communication system. And this is called the dance language and it's called a language because it, it actually uses symbols of a kind. And so what happens is that a bee that has found a good flower patch comes back to the colony and using this dance language can tell other bees the, the direction and the distance of that food source using symbols. And the way this is, works, you have to imagine all of this takes place in the darkness of the hive. And um, 
on and on the vertical honeycomb. And the way this works is so it's the shape of the stance is roughly a figure eight, where the bee um, sort of runs in alternative um, circles, one right circle, then a short straight line, then a left circle, and another straight line, and so on. Now, this straight line in the middle is the most important bit, because the longer that straight line, the further away is the food. So let, that, let's say that that, um, that straight line the bee takes three seconds, that tells other bees the food is three kilometers away, or it takes two seconds to walk, that, that means it's two kilometers away, and so on. But the, so that's the distance and the direction is even weirder because it uses inside the hive an alignment with gravity and outside the hive an alignment with the sun. So that if this straight line of the waggle dance is straight up inside the hive, that tells bees to fly straight in the direction of the sun outside the hive, right? So up inside the hive means to the sun outside the hive. If the waggle run is straight down, that tells other bees fly opposite the sun. And any angle to the vertical means fly that angle. So 45 degrees to the right of gravity inside the hive tells other bees fly 45 degrees to the right of the sun outside the hive. So they have this communication system by which using this um, dance, this repeated running around on the comb, tells other bees where to go. But to return to the question of flower odors, scents, um, the, the dancing bees will also carry the flower scent on their bodies. And other bees that attend to this dance inside the hive will in the process also learn the, the odor of the flower. So they don't just know where to go, but they also come with the information about how, where they're going smells. So we're in the, we're in the, in the hive then. Lars, the expert, goes out, finds a dandelion or whatever it is that he likes. He comes back. He does the dance. Me as a young Padawan learner bee sits there watches the dance and I can smell what he smells like, even though I might not be familiar with that particular flower yet, I know to go in that direction and look for that smell. That's what you're saying, basically. Yeah, so the, the information of the location is passed on with the pattern of the dance and the smell is also passed on just because the dancer smells of that um, flower type. Um, how, should how we said that- No, no, go ahead. Just briefly, so the, the dance can't be watched because it happens in complete darkness. So the way that a dance follower picks up the information is by actually putting her antenna, her feelers, on the bum of the dancing bee and follows her around through several dance circuits. So they have to touch each other for the information being passed on because they can't that, see in there. So when a dancer starts to dance, if uh, one's being attached, how many bees can be attached at one time? Or is it, is it like one by one or is it like 30 can lock on? Three to five maximum, not more. And how many? So se several individuals can follow at any one time, mm -hmm. but, but not more than about five. Okay, so in your right. average hive, you'd have a dancer, three to five attaching, and then how many times would the dancer have to go through the process to get all the ones trained up? Is this like... Uh, a thousand, a hundred, 
50? No, they will typically do this dance circuit for a few dozen times, not more, sometimes even less. But the trick is that, of course, the bees that the few bees that have attended it will then go out to fly to the same location. And if they find it rewarding, they'll also come back and dance. So the system can very quickly snowball. So if they've found a really rich food source, like a honey jar that someone's left outside or something, you might quickly have thousands of bees there because, well, a single bee can only recruit five. If three minutes later, five new ones fly out, mm -hmm. they all come back, deliver a dance, you'll have 25, 10 minutes later, Multiply right. that by five, you've got 125, and, and so you keep going like that. So how do you understand, or how do you think about the bees being able to have learned this language as you described it? Because, you know, we, we could talk about the size of the brain, but, you know, you have these bees who can understand from a larva coming out to this complex dance, which, I mean, you're talking about asthmus, basically. That's <laughs> how they're determining where to go and stuff and, and smell. How, do, how does that happen? Yeah, so as you say, their brains are small. Um, they're about the size of a pinhead. Um, and the number of nerve cells in these brains are also at least relatively small. Um, so there are about a million nerve cells in a bee brain. There are about 80 billion in a human. And... So that might um, might make it sound, it's certainly simpler, but it's not simple. So the, the challenge for neuroscientists to understand even an insect brain is that while the, the number of cells is relatively small, the wiring diagram, so all of these cells are connected with neural cables, so to speak, the wiring diagram is still extremely complex. So each individual nerve cells, if you sort of draw it out with all of its nerve cables attached, has, can have the structure of like a fully grown oak tree. So it's, it's small, but it's extremely elaborate. And each of these nerve cells can make contacts with up to 10,000 contacts with other neurons. So you've got a very elaborate microcomputer um, inside this tiny head that that for even the the kinds of neuroscientists that under, want to use insects to understand whole brain function this is still a dream that's some time ahead before we understand the full circuitry of a, of a bee's brain if you were to take a honeybee um, and you were to introduce a new plant that could be good for them right or or, you know, yeah, be good for them or bad for them. How long would it take for them to go check that plant out and either add it to the list of a positive or a negative? Very quickly. Um, so it depends on how many familiar plants are already out there and whether these yield good nectar. So if the bees are happy with everything that they know, it will take longer to explore um, new flower types that you should put into their flight range. But part of the reason why honeybees are so successful, even in parts of the world where they're not native, like the Americas, for example, honeybees were brought over with, uh, with the Mayflower and then of course with many other European settlers, um, 
And these bees, even though, of course, in North America, they found none of the same flowers that they would have been familiar with at the European origins, they started right away. Um, so they start within minutes exploring, testing all kinds of flowers, even if these are not part of their native range, and incorporate them into their diet. And in the same way, of course, the honeybee is now established in Australia and New Zealand and so on. All of these were habitats that have no um, familiar flowers or flowers that bees would have encountered in their, these honeybees would have encountered in the, their evolutionary history. Their flexibility means that they are very quickly adaptable to new locations. Where can they not live? Um, in extremely cold climates, Antarctica, there are no bees. Um, and honeybees... Is that, is, that, is that because of the cold or is that because of the lack of the food? So if you could generate a food source, could they survive the cold or is the cold just a, a non-starter? Um, it, it's probably both. Um, it's too cold and there's too little food. Okay. Now that said, so honeybees are largely tropical in their origins and perform reasonably well in temperate habitats, but they don't get very far north. But um, but bumblebees, for example, are, are some species are much more adapted to cold climates and will certainly exist as far um, north as north of the polar circle, for example, in regions where the summers are very brief, but there is a time window of just six weeks, two months, when they find flowers and that's enough and they can overwinter. Typically it's only the queens that overwinter in these conditions, but they can make it through, bumblebees can make it through extremely harsh climates. Okay, why do honeybees make honey? I'm not a bee guy, so you gotta help me out here. I've never, uh, why do they make honey? What's, what's up with that? Um, it's it's uh, storage for for a rainy day or for the winter. Um, so bumblebees make honey as well, but only in in limited quantities and just uh, to keep them uh, keep some storage for their larvae. But honeybees, of course, store for longer periods, and that's what humans capitalize on. So they store honey for the winter months, for example, where the colony would survive in nature, let's say in a hollow tree, and there would be months of ice and snow when there are no natural flowers and they would still survive. And they need fuel, of course, to keep, um, to keep going through, through the winter months. And these can be long, depending on how far north or extremely south you are. Um, you might be talking three, four months where you, where you just have to survive on what you've collected the previous summer. And so that's what they what they store the honey for. And and often there is a surplus and that's what human what beekeepers reap, of course. Yeah, that's where I was going to go next is in the wild, how accurate are their predictions of honey uh, storage for a winter period? Is it, is it pretty close or is it usually they've got a lot of excess? So if no one's going to raid the honey nest, like you just watch one over winter, how close is it? Um, I don't think that they have a way to predict how harsh the winter is. So the higher their resources, the more likely they are to survive. You don't know that in advance, of course. So um, if you imagine that each colony um, would collect only half of what they have the capacity for, then in a mild winter, they might more or less get through. 
but if the climate is a bit harsher and or you're also let's say raided by a bear that uh, steals half the honey or something like that then you're in bad trouble so they all try to maximize their intake for as long as they can with as much of a workforce that they can so that they're they can't just survive ideally an average winter but one that might also bring um, a surprise in terms of duration or extreme levels of cold and so on. The more the merrier. So we used to have a squirrel in our backyard with a pecan tree. And you would see about this time of the year, you know, when the when the pecans start falling, he'd go and start burying them in the backyard. Uh, and it was always kind of funny to watch him do that. And maybe, maybe the rest of the year he's doing stuff, I don't know. But this time of the year, you, you start to observe that. Um, or a little bit later, I guess. But anyways, what point do the bees are they storing for winter? Is this a year-round function? Is it this a seasonal function? They start to build up. Um, when do they start preparing for winter? Well, how long is a piece of string? I mean, the um, the honey that's collected in spring is largely to provide the 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 building up of the workforce for generating new queens and drones and so on. But if some of it's left over, it's kept. So if they don't use it up um, in fall, then it might be kept all the way through some of it from, from the spring to the winter. But more likely, some of it will be consumed during the spring and summer season. And then the actual storage building for the, the winter months might happen later in the season. Well, yeah, let me maybe rephrase the question then. Um, we talked about sensitivities earlier. Is there a temperature sensitivity that they know when, so for the squirrel, when the nuts start to fall, it seems that he's able to tune in. Right. I've got to start showing up. Is there some kind of sensitivity that, that they know the temperature's dropping or the, the leaves are falling off or, or whatever, we've got to start increasing our storage at this point? Yeah. So they better get most of it done before the leaves are falling off because the season of the highest um, richness of flowers is typically early in summer well it depends a bit on where yeah. you are but later in summer when the climate becomes more hot and arid the flowers also wither and um so there, there might be less so much of it you will actually have to get done sooner rather than later depends a bit on where you are in the world so for example in the mediterranean basin after of aridity there's often a what people call a little spring when in September and October, the rains start again and some flowers come into bloom. That's another opportunity for, for bees to stock up for the winter as well. But you don't have that everywhere. Yeah. So so if I'm understanding correctly, you're saying that the weather that they're generally producing the same amount. It's just the weather, um, depending on what's going on, will determine how much they can produce. So they're not they're, they're not seasons where they're trying to ramp up uh, their production to bring it in. It's just a kind of a consistent thing. And then the weather is going to dictate how much um, they can actually bring into the hive. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. But I mean, I think the, the, the strategy is not necessarily a predictive one. It's a kind of greedy one. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's like rich people amassing more and more um, fortune just, just in case. So just mm -hmm. to be on the safe side, everyone feels safer if they've got a bit more in their, in their pantry. <laughs> um, so that, um, that that helps them to survive a possibly difficult time, even if that difficult time doesn't um, doesn't actually materialize. I guess mm. it's fascinating just to to think about. You, know, you talked about the complexity of, of their brain and yet how small it is. 
Um, how often are you surprised by bees at this point? You know, because me, I see bees, may get stung by one, you know, eat the honey, but you know, all this is, is surprising to me. But for you, do they still surprise you? Yeah. I mean, we've done all this um, work on the intelligence of bees as individuals. So in addition to the sort of social organization that we'd already talked about, they have amazing learning skills. And so perhaps unsurprisingly, they as individuals learn to memorize the appearance of their hive and the location of the hive and also of different flower species. But when I um, started out working with them, we did an experiment where we asked if they can count, where they have a, um, where they can had to memorize the number of landmarks that they encountered on a flight from the hive to a feeding station. And they could do that. And this was in the early 90s. And at the time, no one would have thought this even possible. And I mean, we were, I mean, I was a, a young PhD student. I was like, whoa, what are we seeing here? This is amazing, and um, and and so the the list of such things has never is is ongoing. So I mean, we later discovered that they can memorize images of human faces. So in that case, we give them a little, we give them let's say a, a, a black and white photograph of a face and a little sugar reward that they collect when they visit um, when they land in front of the right face. And after they've learned to land there reliably, we then shuffle the faces like in a crime witness test and we give them several photos but no rewards and um and then we ask okay can you find the one where you've previously got a reward if so land on it and they can do that qu with quite high precision wow and again that was was amazing of course at the time you, you said black and white can that do they see in black and white or was there some other reason for that no, um, they, they can see in color. They see in colors very different from humans. So they can see ultraviolet light, which we cannot. On the other hand, they can't see red as well as humans can. So their whole visual, visual spectrum is shifted to shorter wavelengths. But in this case, we just chose um, black and white photos because the images we used were actually from a psychological test to mm. diagnose a condition called prosopanosia, where human patients, for example, stroke victims, lose their ability to um, to recognize human faces, and so we use the same test test images that psychologists use in this case. Um, for we we use the same images for bees. So they can recognize your face. Can you train the bee to think of you? real not not a picture but a human human as someone safe not a threat it's possible we don't know is the honest answer so a lot of beekeepers have asked this question because they often feel that their bees recognize them as individuals and um because they get used to them and will treat them with um um well, less less as a as a hostile individual than a random passersby, for example, but that might just be gut feelings. I don't know. So the task of identifying a live human being, irrespective of their clothes and of the weather, um, and irrespective of how they position themselves, is more challenging than just a, a static image, right? So the image 
um, is 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 a very simple stimulus compared to a person that you have to recognize from different angles and so on. So that would require more testing. We don't know that, but at least it's not impossible. Can they recognize each other? So, you know, if you have a bee from your hive versus a bee from different hive, how do they distinguish that? By smell. Okay. It's a good question. So they can't do it visually. And that would be very difficult because typically bees of different, uh, of the same population, at least of very similar in visual appearance. But the, the smells of different hives are subtly different. It also depends on what kind of flower scents they bring in and so on. And, and they can tell these differences and guard bees pick that up. And that's important because bees are quite opportunistic when it comes to where they get their nectar. So they don't necessarily want to do all the hard work to get it from flowers. And they will sometimes just go into nearby hives and steal it from others. And, and that, of course, is the, the guard bees want to prevent that. And so they're typically smelling every bee that comes in to make sure they detect any intruders. And we typically attack them if they, if they do detect them. That's crazy. That's wild. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you mentioned this, this, they have a society, they're, they're, they're individualistic, but they're decentralized and all this complexity. So help me with the hives here. How different are the hives that you, when you study them, are they, pretty, are there, I mean, obviously I, I can imagine there's some similarities, but is it pretty wide variety in how these hives are built and the intricacies, or is it pretty, is it a standard uh, template that they're all following? So, so a hive is a, is a, is a man-made structure. It's the kind of box that we humans put the, the bees into. But naturally, they um, have very different structures of, of um, nests. And so the, the, the honeybees that we humans have domesticated naturally live in hollow trees, for example, or cavities in, um, in rocks and so on. Um, but they, they naturally nest, nest in dark spaces with, with a small opening. And they build these familiar honeycomb structures, which are highly regular because it's all these little hexagonal cells that are exactly interfaced with each other to minimize any kind of wastage of space. So if you built um, circular cells, which some other species do, then of course there is space wasted in between. Whereas hexagons, you can fit um, with, without any kind of gaps in between. And so honeybees build these hexagonal combs, which are also double-sided. So you can fill in honey from both sides and also put in larvae from both sides. Other species of bees have horizontal combs. So many stingless bees, for example, have a, a construction where the comb is horizontal. And where there are multiple floors, so to speak, that are each, in, again, inside a cavity, that are each standing on pillars. And again, you have to imagine it's dark in there. So any intruder, like ants, for example, or wasps that try to get into the nest, they can't fly in there. They have to walk. They have to come up or down these pillars. And that makes these structures much easier to defend because there's no easy way to jump to the goodies, the honey or the brood. So they have to go along these pillars. And there are amazing specializations. So there are some tropical stingless bees that have a little 
wax ball ready in case there are any intruders or in case the, the hive is flooded because some of them nest in, um, in um, near the ground, which is sometimes inundated. They have a little wax ball that they can roll into the opening of their nest and quickly seal it so that no other bees can come in. Yet others build strange landing structures, like funnel-shaped things that they build from sometimes white river sand. Mm. And they use these to fly in at full speed. They're not slowing down and landing, but fly in at full speed and slide down this funnel without slowing down. And that helps them to avoid predators like lizards that might otherwise sit next to the nest entrance and capture them. So they're bypassing them by just sliding down into these tubes. That's wild. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. wild. Yeah, yeah, the diversity is absolutely fantastic. How, how hard is it to monitor? You, you talked about, um, you know, I said the term hive, you said that it's a man-made domesticated term. Um, and the ones that you're describing are in the wild, um, but they're in the dark. So how hard is it for you or people who do your work to, to observe this stuff? Because if it's in the dark, does lighting it up mess them up? Or it seems like there'd be some problems there or difficulties. Yeah, so... Um... The, the bees, honeybees and bumblebees fortunately don't mind very much if you let some light into their nest boxes. So honeybee um, keepers often use what they call observation hives, and we've used these as well, where one of the side walls is replaced with a glass screen. And so long as you don't sort of rapidly flip the lights on and or vibrate the hive, they don't actually mind being observed through a glass screen like that. Um, and similarly with bumblebees, if the light turns gradually on and there's no other vibrations or anything, they don't actually mind being observed. But in order to have a completely natural setting, what we and other people do is observe them under infrared light, which they cannot see. And so that allows us to, to monitor their behavior under completely natural conditions. Um, we can't see infrared either, so we need special infrared cameras for this. But that, with this sort of equipment, it's no problem at all. How much do they talk to each other? Is there any communication that's non-work related? You always think like worker bees. Is there any kind of play that they do or something that's not like get honey, build the comb? That's a very good question. We've got actually a study coming up which seems to indicate that they display something, bumblebees display something like play behavior. And um, so this is based on some work that we did years ago where, again, we were pushing the, the, um, the intelligence um, tests a little bit to find out just how much intelligence can you squeeze into that little brain? So the test we did was the bees had to roll a little ball over a horizontal surface to, to a goal area. And if they did that, they got a little sugar reward. And, um, and they learned that just fine, but they even learned this by observing other skilled bees. So in uninformed bees, naive bees, could actually learn where to put the ball by just watching an experienced bee. And in the process of, of that study, we found that at least some bees seemed to, even when there was no reward, 
they just uh, went back to the balls again and again and rolled them all over the place. So they seemed to like this activity of manipulating round objects. And one of my um, PhD students, Samadhi Galpayash, then um, looked at this more closely and it turns out that it's especially young bees that, that engage with this activity, very much like puppy dogs. And they do it again and again and again without any kind of reward. And so that looks at least superficially like a form of, of play behavior. What happens to a bee that doesn't perform or is wounded maybe? Um, so a bee that doesn't perform, there's, there's no one monitoring any individual's performance. Uh, there seem to be some wasp species where inactive individuals are sort of actively um, bullied and pestered by other wasps, but in bees we've never seen this. So it seems that everyone really is relatively intent on providing for the good of the colony with relatively few entirely lazy bees. Um, there are some that are clearly less active than others, but it's in general, it's thought that this is a kind of reserve force that, for example, sometimes, let's say on an extreme weather day, the bee, the hive can lose quite a number of their forages on flowers, or there might be some sort of predator attack that devastates the hive. And then these um, previously relatively inactive bees can swing into action. Is there a, a reward for being a more high-functioning bee? Not really. Um, so, I mean, the, you, you could say that, of course, the bees that work harder to forage from flowers might actually get more access to nectar. But the truth is, because of the honey storage, if bees wanted to be selfish, everyone could just walk over to the honey pots and, uh, and help themselves. But that doesn't happen. So there is, there is, I guess, a, a general appreciation that everyone is expected to work for the common good. How do we account for that? Um, I mean, I guess inside the colony, everyone works together um, in part because they're highly related. Um, so it is one big family. The, the queen is the mother of everyone in that colony and, and all the individual, the workers are, are sisters that are even more highly related actually than, than individual, than children in the human family are to each other. So I guess that's the idea why they're to some extent all helping each other because in the end, they're all promoting each other's genes by helping the queen raise more of the same um, genotype, so to speak. What is the biggest unanswered question that you're trying to discover right now about bees? Well, in addition to um, their, their, the question about their intelligence um, that we've explored over the last few decades, one of the, the big questions that came up more recently and that a number of people have asked us, and we've also asked ourselves the same question is, well, if they're that smart, can they also feel something? Is there like a, a sentience, or some sort of even primitive emotional state? And that's a very difficult question to answer in any animal, of course, even in human. Um, of course, let's say if you're asking the question at what stage 
is does a baby or an or even an embryo when do they feel things it's not a trivial question if you think about the fact that for example up until the 1990s people would still operate on small babies saying they can't feel anything and the doctors would say well yeah of course they're screaming and um, and they're kicking but that's all just reflexes they don't feel anything and nowadays we think that is absurd but of course the reason that people were thinking that is simply because you can ask a baby hey how does do you actually suffer from this they couldn't express it so but people thought that all the screaming just is meaningless it doesn't indicate any sort of feeling so it's a difficult question and one that requires some common sense and um and some comparisons with um, with other animals, for example, so people are now generally in agreement that domestic animals, cats, dogs, and so on, have some form of emotional states that can be measured in psychological tests. And we're trying to explore whether this works in bees as well. And of course, this might seem like a crazy question to ask if there is a form of emotion-like state, even a very simple one, in an insect, but I think it's an it's an interesting and important question. So, if I'm thinking right about this, you said earlier the younger bees would like to play, um, and the older bees were a little less prone to. Isn't that some sort of an emotional state right there? It is, yeah. So it it is. I mean, if if indeed this behavior is performed without the present presence of any immediate functionality, without there being um, a, a payoff for it, without there being any kind of appreciable benefit right away, and they're doing it just for the sake of doing it again and again, then at least that suggests that it's actually pleasant, that it feels good. At least you would conclude the same in a, in a dog that, um, that likes to play fetch, for example, is that it's actually an enjoyable activity rather than some sort of reflex program. Yeah, I, I, it's a weird question because the bee, you would think, fundamentally understands that going, doing this dance, doing, I mean, you know, we do, we all do work, so they understand that there's a, there's a payoff and a reward um, in doing that's important. And so on some level that would seem to attribute some of these things that you're talking about, maybe not obviously as complex as, as what we are, but you know, if, if, if the bees are diverse as you're, you're, you're speaking of, um, they'd have to have some sort of, I don't know if awareness is the right term, but, but some sort of emotional response because, um, they're not, I guess they're not, they're not computers, right? So they're, they're not computers, they're not humans, but, <laughs> but they, they're responding to something more than just a, more than just a, more than just like you hit a knee with a reflex. I would agree with that. And it's interesting that you should say that, but many of my scientist colleagues still hold the traditional view that many animals are basically reflex machines that are just permanently stuck in the present, that they're just responding to currently incoming stimuli as they happen with some sort of innate response, but that that's all, that there's nothing else going on, um, that it's basically dark inside their minds. Mm, um, yeah, but yeah, I yeah. think there is increasing evidence for an increasing number of animal species that, that 
that view is outdated. Yeah. Well, I, I, as a non-scientist here, just a just a podcaster, <laughs> I would say that maybe the the spectrum of what's allowable in the mind of the bee is different than a human. You know, um, you know, in a human, you're gonna have someone like yourself who's gonna study bees for a long time. Someone like myself who's gonna interview someone who studies bees. Um, whereas what you're saying, or from with, with bees, you're not gonna have a bee who's gonna grow up and wants to go be you know, something other than a bee. Like there's only, there's only a set amount of functions that they're going to consider. And so that, that, that is a limiting nature um, to them. And so they're not going to start, instead of building hives, they're not going to start building houses or whatever. So there's, they are limited in what they do, but, but I don't think that's necessarily makes them reflex only though. I, I agree with that. Yeah. So I think it's, it's a good thing that you brought this up. So um, I don't mean to suggest that a bee's, mental life is anywhere near as complex as a human's and i don't mean to suggest that um that there is the same almost infinite degree of flexibility that we humans have um, in terms of the things that we invent and construct and can imagine um, th there are clearly more limits in 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 the world of an insect than there are in 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 humans and that, to some extent, applies to most other animals as well. And of course, no, no other um, animal travels into space or lights fires and so on. Right. Yeah. So quite clearly, the, the human species is is unique. There's no question about that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go to the other end of the extreme when exploring what's going on in inside a bee's head and just say, well, it's um, it's just a tiny machine. So I think it's a bit more than that. Yeah. Relative to other insects, animals, et cetera, how do the bees rank on intelligence? It's a difficult comparison to make, um, but I think among the insects, they are relatively unique in, in terms of their learning skills and individual intelligence. That said, the um less popular but related wasps in some cases also display fairly impressive behavior so um, there are some species of wasps for example that recognize um, they live in very small colonies like a dozen individuals and they recognize each other's faces individually and so unlike bees these faces are also highly individually different and they, um, inside these colonies, each individual remembers the other ones. They have a kind of hierarchy where there's one individual at the top and everyone else is on a linear hierarchy beneath that, um, that um, top individual that gets to lay all the eggs and just uh, make, uh, monopolize all the reproduction. And only if that top individual gets killed or removed, then everyone else moves up a step. They establish that hierarchy by fights. They're like one-on-one -on -one duels, which are costly. Sometimes you sustain injuries. You might even get killed, but that's rare, but you might lose a leg. And so it's a useful thing to remember who's stronger in that hierarchy and who's less strong. And they know their place in the hierarchy by recognizing each other. And that also, a few years ago, I think people would have deemed that impossible, that there is individual recognition of other members of a colony in an insect. So there are other examples of 
insect intelligence that have come about in this century that um, before people would have would have deemed impossible. Um, other insects, I think, um, if you're talking mosquitoes or uh, cockroaches, I would imagine are are less intelligent. Um, well, I don't know. The cockroach is a survivor. <laughs> They're a survivor. I don't know how intelligent they are, but we can't get rid of them dudes. They're, they've got something going for them, it seems. Yeah, um, yeah, they are amazingly resilient, of course, but not necessarily through their yeah. intelligence. But um, Your breeding other... skills, perhaps. I don't know. So you sent over a video of a, of a bee song, I think is how you describe it. So I, I watched it. Um, I'm, I'm going to link to it in the show notes. What? what uh, explain it to me, though. So sorry, I have to ask which which video was that? Was that the beekeeper's dream? Um, it was called. Hold on, let me pull it up here. The mind. No, it's called. Um, hold on. Um, it's in my history right here. I hope you can edit this part out later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, kill, killer bee queens. The bee That's the band yeah, name. Yeah. That's yeah, the, the band the, name. No, the build, yeah, the, the beekeeper's dream. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just to explain that project a bit, I think for me, as someone who is fascinated and to some extent obsessed with bees, there is a lot of poetry in the world of bees as well. So to give you a few examples, I think nowhere else is um, sex as closely related to death as in the honeybee drone, for example. Um, they die immediately after copulation. They only mate once, these um, male bees, and then um, that's it, they die from the, because they're basically their copulatory organs rip out and they, they, they die after that. The queen, however, can mate multiple times. Um, and in fact, dozens of times is what uh, she typically does, but um, but not so the male. So there there is um, there are all kinds of interesting stories about the that relate to the science that we do, and this I think um, has been picked up over the ages by various artists and musicians um, being fascinated by by the world of bees and capturing this in. In music, Rimsky-Korsakov's the, the Flight of the Bumblebee is an example. Um, the film that I used um, in that little video that you found is called Wax or the Discovery of Television Amongst the Bees, which was actually the first film that was ever aired on the internet. And it's a kind of surrealist film that plays on the world of bees and how it interrelates with the human world. So that fascinates me, and I thought at some point I'd like to try to write some song lyrics that are in some ways inspired by my research or by others' research and findings about bees. So specifically, this song, The Beekeeper's Dream, is a kind of nightmarish song where, where the bees turn against their keeper, so to speak. Um, and so it's loosely inspired by Highsmith's The Snail Watcher, where, where the, the author or the, 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 the narrator gets overwhelmed by his pet um, snails. And in this case, it's the bees that um, 
attack the beekeeper. As you can sense from the lyrics that the beekeeper has remorse about stealing the honey from the bees, but it doesn't necessarily have to be about a beekeeper. It could also be about a, a researcher who has ethical concerns about the treatment that he subjects his animals to. So it's uh, there are various open-ended interpretations to the song lyrics. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's the background. Okay. Well, I started out this podcast, as I said, as a, as a very much a bead novice. I, I see them, got, probably got stuck by one over the years, don't know much about them. Um, I've ended this podcast as a bead novice, but far more fascinated by the topic. Um, I knew it was going to be an interesting discussion, and so I appreciate you coming down to my level for this for this past hour. It's been it's been a real pleasure to to hear and to uh, try to get my head around what's going on with bees. It's been completely fascinating. So I appreciate you dumbing it down for me today. You're very welcome. It's been a very enjoyable discussion. Okay, so we're going to link to your book, of course. Um, where else do you want us to send people to? Um, just the book would be fantastic if you could flag that up. Okay. The Mind of the Bee, as we mentioned in the introduction, is the book. We will put that in the show notes and encourage listeners to go check out the book. Again, thank you for your time today. All right. Thank you. Okay. There it is. You heard the simpleton ask the expert questions. What did you know? What didn't you know? Let me know. Warroommedia.com. And we'll talk to you tomorrow.